Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for January 25th, 2018. On today's show, we're going to be talking about our favorite film from the 2018 Sundance Film Festival. This is Peter Sarda, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, how's it going? And Slash Film Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's up? So, uh, as you guys probably know, I was at the Sundance Film Festival for less than 24 hours. I did not get to see any films. But Ben and Brad both got to see some films for the site, and we also had Steve, uh, a.k.a. Capone, uh, covering some reviews for the site. But right now we have on the line Brad and Ben uh, to talk about their favorite films of the Sundance Film Festival. And before we get into that, I know some people are probably already tuning out because they're like, Sundance Film Festival, I don't want to hear about this. But, um, you know, we should mention, you know, some of the biggest films that people are talking about today uh, uh, premiered at last year's Sundance Film Festival, The Big Sick, Call Me By Your Name, you know, so the, even even though the you have not heard of these films now, you could very well be very excited about these films at the end of the year, so uh, this is your chance to uh, get in on the ground floor, to hear about some films really early, and uh, get excited about something uh, before all your friends, and, uh, you know, be in the know. Uh, I, uh, before we get into it, I just want to say, uh, you know, uh, I had been going to the Sundance Film Festival for 16 years. Before I started Slash Film, I was a volunteer there, and I would see films there, and I would come home, and, uh, you know, when those films c- came out on DVD, I would have, like, movie nights with my friends and, and expose them to all these, like, weird movies, like, you know, Primer and, you know, small independent movies that people probably wouldn't have heard. I mean, I guess now with the internet and social media, like people hear about things more, but back Mm -hmm. then it it wasn't the case. Um, and I, I think it's kind of actually how slash film started in a way is they, to, to share this love of these films that people probably don't hear about. I know 80% of what we write about are these big, uh, you know, superhero films and star Wars movies. But, uh, the part I love about slash film the most is us being able to champion a small movie, like the big sick or, uh, Inger Goes West or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. So so I'm excited to find out from you guys, because I wasn't there this year for the first time in 16 years, uh, to find out what movies I should be looking forward to later this year. Uh, so um, 
Actually, before we get into it, guys, how was this year's Sundance Film Festival? Uh, Brad, why don't you go first? Um, I will say that it felt like there wasn't any major standouts or titles that were crazy buzzed about or highly anticipated this year. Feels like it's a, a bit of a lower key festival, even uh, on the sales side of things. Um, there's not a lot of stuff that's getting snatched up like crazy. We're not hearing about a lot of beating wars or anything like that. Um, so, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't plenty of good stuff to see. You know, um, I, I honestly didn't see a movie that I disliked. There were movies that I was a little lukewarm on, but I still enjoyed things um, about them, especially performances. And yeah, pretty much everything I saw was something that I enjoyed for one reason or another. And there are plenty of movies that I also love. So at least for for my experience, I had uh, I had a pretty good festival run. And Brad, how many movies did you see total when you were there? Uh, I my final count was seventeen. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, I think my final count is either fourteen or fifteen. I, I lost track somewhere in there. Um, but yeah, that's I'm I haven't been to Sundance in five years. Um, so it was cool for me to to go back. But yeah, I definitely felt that same um, sense of uh, almost wariness from a lot of the buyers, and and the buzz was not um, it was not deafening this year for pretty much anything. It was like there was a lot of good stuff, but nothing that people were like, "Holy crap! Drop everything! You have to go see this movie immediately." Um, and, and we should note that there's less buyers. You know, the Weinstein Company, we know what's going on with them, and yep. uh, yeah, Fox Searchlight. You know, Fox is in the process of being purchased by Disney. I'm not sure if they're gun shy and purchasing stuff that wouldn't be coming out until you know when Disney is actually uh, you know their overlords. And um, you know, Netflix and Amazon are just buying everything. Uh, yeah, so- and and there have been some pretty high profile cases uh, in the past few years where people have you know horrifically overpaid for movies and and really um, you know sort of bottomed out when they eventually release them release them uh, in the box office. So like. Um, was the movie that Nate Parker directed, uh, The Birth of a Nation. I think Fox Searchlight spent like $17 million on that movie or something. And then all of the allegations and, and past behavior of Nate Parker came out and that movie just tanked for them. So I think studios and, and you know, uh, acquisition distributors and stuff like that are probably a little bit, uh, yeah, more gun shy uh, right now, especially in our current environment. I do remember being at Sundance in the height of, you know, acquisition, uh, independent acquisition, where, like, I, I remember being at the Eccles Theater, the biggest theater at Sundance, uh, for the premiere of Little Miss Sunshine. And uh, about halfway during the movie, you started to see acquisition people just leave their seats and run because they wanted to go and just place bids and it was like a it was like an exodus of all the acquisition people like one after they saw you know the fox search early people left so you know the sony picture classic people ran you know and it, it, it was just madness but uh, it's hilarious that they were like literally running through the theater yeah yeah <laughs> it was crazy uh but okay so it doesn't sound like it's that crazy this year um but uh let's let's start with um i guess brad's number five choice and that is the kindergarten teacher yeah, um, so this was a uh, a solid little. What starts off as a charming uh, movie about a kindergarten teacher and this precocious young kid who seems to be very skilled at poetry, uh, and it kind of quietly turns into this um, somewhat unsettling thriller, I'll say. And it stars Maggie Gyllenhaal as the the titular character, a kindergarten teacher, um, and this adorable kid. Uh, who is, the name is Parker Sivak, who is, uh, just starts spouting off poetry and 
as this teacher who kind of has reached this point in her life where she's disappointed in where she's at and is bored and is trying to, you know, impress people with poetry at this this poetry class she takes in Manhattan. Um, she sees potential in him and makes some questionable decisions about how to help him find success and, and that kind of thing. Uh, it's directed by Sarah Colangelo, who directed Little Accidents before, so she's uh, a Sundance alum. And it's just, it's very well done. It uh, raises some interesting questions about um, how we approach education for our children and, uh, you know, the decisions we make as far as supporting them or the lack of attention we pay to them. Uh, I was I was just really, really impressed by it. And um, one of the things for me on a personal note that was actually kind of cool is the, the poetry used in the movie. Uh, one of the poems that was selected to be used was actually written by a friend of mine who I went to college with. Uh, his name is Kava Akbar. And he's one of those rare, extremely successful poets who has been featured in the New Yorker and has books and whatnot. So that was uh, that was really cool to see. Nice. Yeah. And her um, first feature, uh, Little Accidents, was nominated for the Independent Spirit uh, Best First Screenplay. Uh, that started off as a short film at the Suntan Film Festival in 2010 and got adapted into a feature. So I'm excited to see what the, the what her latest is like. Um Let's move on to Ben's number five choice, and that is Mandy. Yes. Uh, in my review, I called this a primal psychedelic rage scream of a movie, and that really is the best way to describe it. This is uh, Nicolas Cage's film. It's directed by uh, Panos Cosmatos, who is the filmmaker behind a movie called Beyond the Black Rainbow. Uh, and this, if you've seen that movie, you sort of know a little bit what to, to expect here. Uh, this is set in the early 80s. Nicolas Cage plays a lumberjack who lives in a cabin in the woods with his artist girlfriend, who's played by Andrea Riseborough, and she is captured by a crazy cult leader who conjures a group of motorcycle-riding demons in order to kidnap her. And then uh, the back half of the movie is Nicolas Cage covered in blood and doing drugs and going totally insane, trying to enact his vengeance against this uh, psychotic cult. So the first hour is very 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 slow but then once the volcano actually erupts and and cage is like let off the chain and just goes nuts it uh, it turns into exactly the movie that you want it to be um based on some of the images and i'm sure uh, the eventual trailer um it's worth pointing out that this movie does not have distribution yet but apparently it's the highest rated movie on rotten tomatoes at the entire sundance film festival right now and has a hundred percent um rating even though i think there's only like 15 reviews or something so i'm sure that will end up dropping uh once the movie you know sort of opens up to a wider um, amount of people but um but still worth <laughs> worth pointing out that this insane psychedelic kaleidoscopic uh nightmare of a movie with nicholas cage is the, <laughs> the highest rated thing at sundance that's pretty nuts yeah that that movie does sound crazy and speaking of crazy brad's number four is bodied yeah this so this was an um technically not a Sundance selection, even though it played at Sundance. Uh, YouTube had a kind of surprise sneak preview screening since they just announced that they bought the movie. This movie actually played previously at Fantastic Fest, and uh, they wanted to showcase it at Sundance, get a little bit more buzz behind it. And this is a movie that I had been excited to see for a while, so I knew I had to go out of my way to see it at Sundance. I'm so glad I did. Um, it's directed by Joseph Kahn, who is most famous for directing music videos for the likes of Taylor Swift and Katy Perry and whatnot. Um, but he also directed a movie called Detention, which previously played Sundance. And uh, this time he set his sights on directing a movie set in the world of uh, battle rap. 
which we've seen in Eight Mile before, but here it's escalated to uh, a much more stylized, heightened level. And it's almost like Scott Pilgrim versus the World meets Battle Rap, where you have these um, two people going back and forth, spitting rhymes at each other, that are, or they're basically ro- uh, roasting each other in rap form. And the writing in this movie is whip-smart, sharp, it's hilarious. But my favorite thing about it is that it absolutely takes no prisoners and how it roasts every single person you can imagine. Uh, no matter what race, what sex, what gender, or anything. There's something in this movie that is meant to offend everyone. And that's kind of the point, is that you're, it's basically just tearing apart all these like you know walls we built around ourselves and things that upset us. And it's intentionally meant to be politically incorrect. And it is hilarious. And like you, you just get... I got so pumped watching this movie it made me want to go you know and fail at a rap battle epically somewhere <laughs> afterwards um it was it's just so so exciting and so fast-paced and you know you're, you're right there with you know the rap battle crowd like groaning when someone gets a nice burn on, on uh, one of their opponents it's so great i know jacob hall saw this at fantastic fest and loved it um you mentioned eight mile uh isn't eminem one of the producers in this film he is yeah which is really cool. Um, but let's move on to Ben. Oh, wait. And uh, you mentioned YouTube has picked this up. Uh, from what I understand, they're going to release it theatrically before it goes on YouTube Red. Uh, but I don't think we have uh, details on that at this time. Uh, but let's go to uh, go on to Ben's number four pick, and that is Generation Wealth. Yes, this is one that uh, I talked about in our earlier dispatch from Sundance in uh, an earlier episode of the podcast, not you know a couple of days, days ago. So I'm not going to get too much more into it than that. But uh, this is a documentary from uh, Lauren Greenfield, who is a photographer who was the filmmaker behind the 2012 documentary, The Queen of Versailles. And over a 25-year career, she has really um, followed one theme throughout almost all of her work, and that is the idea of wealth and exorbitance and sort of what that does to uh, a society. And um, so this documentary explores, it basically goes, you know, sort of tracks her whole career. It's, it doubles as like a really interesting um, personal piece for her going back through her her career. And she's an acclaimed photographer. She's had photos in all sorts of magazines around the world and stuff like that. So you probably know her work even if you don't recognize her name. Um, but it, it's interesting because there's some personal uh, aspects and, and you get to see her family life and, and what her own sort of obsession with her career has done to her and her family. And then you also get to see these this sort of larger macro view of um, what this sort of consumer culture has done to America and China and Russia and Iceland and all these different countries um, that she uh, explores in this documentary. And she actually um, goes back and, and uh, reconnects with a lot of people that she photographed years before and interviews them now. So like she talks with rappers and pageant kids and porn stars and finance executives and all these different people. And the movie is like a really, really fascinating example of, uh, of how the American dream became so perverted over the years. So, uh, that one was picked up by Amazon or I guess it, maybe it was, it was funded by Amazon initially. In any case, the Amazon logo played before the movie did in the actual theater when I saw it at Sundance. So I'm sure it's going to be coming to Amazon prime, uh, sometime pretty soon. Yes, and you, if you haven't seen her 2012 documentary, The Queen of Versailles, I think it is playing uh, on Hulu for anybody who is a subscriber to Hulu. It uh, was one of my favorite movies of Sundance from that year. Uh, let's move on to number three from Brad, uh, another documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? 
yeah, this is uh, one, this is something that I was anticipated. Um, I, I had anticipated seeing before the festival began, and I was very excited to see it. It's a chronicle of the life and career of Fred Rogers, who is the creator and star of the famous long-running uh, television's program, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, that ran for decades and has spanned a, a few different generations of kids growing up with uh, the Public Broadcasting uh, Corporation. And this was just a wonderfully touching, eye-opening documentary about this man who wanted nothing more but to help kids engage with the world around them and make them understand things that were uh, much more complex uh, than their mind had yet developed to understand. Uh, he was He's so endearing and caring and loving, and all he wanted to do was help children understand, you know, sort of the chaos that exists in the world around us. And it does this by going through kind of like the history of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, showing footage from some of the earliest episodes. Um, and it's, it was just so fascinating to see because there's stuff that I didn't grow up on because I wasn't alive in the 60s and 70s. And you see how they tackle some very serious subject matter in these early years. Um, there's episodes where, you know, they're dealing with the idea of war, um, you know, in the, the land of, of make-believe. And like it's, there's ties to Vietnam and there's stuff about assassination and death and just helping kids come to grips with these things that they know that adults are talking about but they don't entirely understand and it puts down a level that they they do understand and it was just uh such a heartwarming documentary to watch it's it's very much a tribute to fred rogers and it really just shows that there's not anybody else that will ever see like this guy on television again uh there's this is the first time that i've ever been in a screening of a documentary even at sundance and there was a spontaneous applause break after one uh, pivotal moment in the documentary that I, I won't necessarily say it. If you're familiar with Fred Rogers, you may know what it is because it's a very famous thing that he uh, he did at one point. But uh, it was it's just such a moving uh, and touching documentary. You, you definitely have to see it. And the good news is that it's already been picked up. Focus Features is behind it, and it comes out on June 8th this summer. I'm really curious, how much does this delve into him as a uh, person like I feel like I know him as a public persona and you know his show but how much did it delve into his personal life you definitely get a vibe of who he is out, outside of the show um, obviously since he has passed we don't get much perspective from him even though there is some archive footage of him talking about uh, philosophies and the, sh the show itself and that kind of thing but you get more insight from his uh, wife Joanne Rogers and his kids and honestly, that, that's kind of the, what, what the most fascinating thing about this is, is that the public persona of Fred Rogers, that's who he was. That's who he is. That's, that's the most amazing thing about this is there's, there's no dark secrets. There's no hidden personality. There's, there, like everything that we saw on Mr. Rogers, everything that we see in interviews that he's conducted, that's who Fred Rogers is. And that's kind of what makes him so, like such a genuine TV icon. Okay, let's move on to Ben's number three pick. And that is Sorry to Bother You. Yes, this one uh, is directed by Boots Riley. It's uh, the most eccentric directorial debut that I have seen in a long, long time. This movie is extremely weird, but it also is uh, very compelling and it has a, a lot to say. It's it's a searing social satire. It basically stars uh, Lakeith Stanfield from Atlanta and Get Out as a, a an Oakland telemarketer who discovers 
that he has the ability to channel a quote-unquote white voice inside himself to sell products to his customers over the phone. And that white voice is provided by David Cross from Arrested Development. So it's weird. He's like moving, like Keith Stanfield is moving his mouth and David Cross's voice comes out. Um, that is one of many of this movie's really, really surreal touches. Uh, and I almost don't want to say too much about this movie because it's so wild. And I would highly recommend, I mean, first of all, the cast includes Lakeith Stanfield, Tessa Thompson, Army Hammer, uh, Danny Glover, Patton Oswalt, and David Cross. So there's like a ton of really great people in this movie. Um, but I would say go into it knowing as little as possible. I'm, I'm not even really going to say anything more about the story because it's so uh, wild, the stuff that happens on screen. And there is a a jaw-dropping reveal that happens in this movie that I, it's literally unlike anything I've ever seen in a movie before. So uh, this one I think is being, um, it's the focus of a little bit of a, a bidding battle right now. And, and the last we heard was that Annapurna Pictures is close to picking it up, but they haven't officially signed it quite yet. Um, but I, I am confident that you're going to see this at some point uh, in the in the future, whether it's this year or maybe early next year, depending on when they decide to actually release this thing. But uh, it is, <laughs> I mean, if you like any of those people that I mentioned, and especially Army Hammer, he gets to really like lean into the comedy and, and he plays like a coke snorting uh, CEO of a, a high powered company. Um, this movie is is really wild. Yeah, I, I wanted to see this film based on the cast alone. I'm excited to see it when it finally hits theaters, uh, whenever that happens. But let's move on to Brad's number two choice, and that is Blind Spotting. Yes, Blind Spotting uh, recently got picked up by Lionsgate. Uh, it was pretty clear that it was going to be picked up simply just by the vibe of uh, after seeing this movie, which played on opening night at Sundance. This is a movie that uh, stars David Diggs, who you might know from Hamilton. Uh, and it's directed by um, uh, newcomer Carlos Lopez Estrada. And the film takes place in Oakland and follows uh, this guy who is a convicted felon who is was recently released from prison. Um, well, not recently, but um, it's he's been out of prison for almost a year now, and he's in the last few days of his probation and follows him trying to just kind of stay out of trouble, live his life, and not get caught up in, in drama again. But he happens to witness the shooting of, of an un, um, seemingly unarmed black man in the streets on his way home by a police officer played by Ethan Embry. And the movie kind of just continues of him trying to stay out of trouble and the, this image haunting him. Um, and what's really interesting is the movie is absolutely hilarious, despite approaching some very serious subject matter that focuses on things like gentrification, races, racism, racial uh, or cultural appropriation. A lot of very serious topics, but it's dealt with um, in a very poignant way that is also hilarious. I think the best way to describe it is it's kind of like do the right thing, but more so for the more uh, modern, recent Black Lives Matter movement um, put, pushing behind it. And it's just uh, a very sharp script, um, has a lot to say as social commentary wise, and David Diggs is outstanding in the lead role. Um, he's clearly going to be a big star. Uh, it, even if this movie isn't what does it for him, and I hope I hope it is, because a lot of people need to see this movie. Um, he just has charisma that is oozing out of him at every turn. He's he's a fantastic actor, um, and for anybody who's a Hamilton fan, yes, you will see him uh, doing a little bit of rapping in this movie, which is also fantastic, and it's it's done for a very uh, good reason. It's very striking uh, and important, and yeah, it's just, this is just one that you need to go out of your your way to see because it's it's outstanding. 
Uh, right after this film premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, it played at the Palm Springs International Film Festival, where the director won uh, the d- Directors to Watch uh, award there. So, um, yeah, this is one to be on the lookout for. Let's move on to Ben's number two choice, which is Lizzie. Yeah, this is one that uh, apparently got a lot of bad buzz at the Sundance Film Festival. And I, you know, I had heard going into it that this movie might not be great. And I was pleasantly surprised. I I don't know if that affected my uh, my view of the film subconsciously or not. But I thought this movie was really, really fantastic. It's Chloe Sevigny or Sevigny. How do you pronounce her name? That last name? Anybody know? Chloe Sevigny? (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm uh, the worst at pronouncing names. I believe I believe it's I, I've heard Sevigny, but I've also heard Savini. So. Okay. All right. Uh, Chloe S. and uh, <laughs> and and Kristen Stewart and um, Chloe plays uh, Lizzie Borden, the notorious uh, murderer who you know the woman who killed her parents in the 1890s. And this movie really flips the script on that story because uh, you know I don't know about you guys, but the only thing I ever knew about Lizzie Borden was that she killed her parents. But this movie justifies her decision by basically setting her up as like this righteous heroine instead of just a you know a, an unfeeling evil murderess. Um, she ends up having a uh, a lesbian relationship with her housemaid, who is played by Kristen Stewart, and both of them are just doing really really terrific work, like subtle, understated. Um, really great performances in this film. And then um, it, it also has a lot to say, I think, about like the idea of uh, preconceived notions about about uh, women's stories being told throughout the years. Like, uh, you know, a lot of times um, history is shaped by the winners and nine times out of 10, the winners in any battle are men. So the idea that maybe men who have told women's stories over the years could have baked their own biases into the the tales that they're passing on um, is something that Lizzie made me think about. Like, how many other women's stories may have been warped by, uh, you know, different uh, interpretations over the years? And, and this movie sort of um, approaches that from this sort of, like, ferociously feminist uh, perspective. And uh, it's pretty brutal at the end because, spoiler alert, they show the killings. I mean, that you sort of know about, in a movie about Lizzie Borden, they're going to show um, the, the famous deaths that are associated with her. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a really fascinating film that, that I think justifies and, and sort of recontextualizes everything you think you know about uh, this notorious historical figure. How is the music in this film? Because it's it's composed by a guy named Jeff Russo, who used to be one of the founding members of the rock band Tonic. But he he's lately been doing a lot of uh, TV work. Like he did the score for Fargo, the TV series, oh, which I love uh, that score in Legion and Star Trek Discovery. Uh, uh, do you, it, was the score notable at all or no? So the thing about this is it very well could have been, but I saw so many movies after that, that everything, especially music, like smaller aspects like that have sort of uh, started to blend together. So I can't confidently say whether this movie, uh, the film or the music in this movie is any good or not. So I'm sorry, Peter, I'm going to, I'm going to let you down with that response, but um, you know, you know what happens when you sort of get into a a whirlwind of seeing like 15 movies in a row. So yeah. And, and, and the best uh, musical score is just like the best visual effects. When it's good, you don't notice them. So, yeah. you know, it just uh, adds into the, uh, the, the storytelling. Uh, but let's move on to Brad's number one film. Oh, wait, and that that's being released by Lionsgate? 
yes, yeah. yeah um, right. I think, or no, uh, Sabin Films, which oh, actually Sabin they Films, may sorry. have some sort of, they may have like a distribution deal with Lionsgate. They don't have a release date yet, but the movie did, Lizzie j- just did get uh, picked up. I think it was yesterday. Yeah, and uh, it's weird too. If you look at IMDb, it looks like the, the same writer is working with the same actress on a Lizzie TV series. I'm not sure if that's happening or oh, not. Oh, so uh, what I understand is this uh, this project started out as a TV series, and it was supposed to go to HBO, and HBO uh, ended up passing on it, and then they ended up paring it down into a movie. So I'm guessing the TV version is probably no longer happening. Ah, uh, that makes sense. Well, there's still two entries on IMDb, so someone needs <laughs> to get on that. Uh, let's go to Brad's number one choice, and that is The Tale. Yes, this is my number one pick. Um, I found it to be the most important, uh, timely, and brave movie that was at Sundance. Um, It's directed by Jennifer Fox, who previously had a career in documentary filmmaking, uh, a very skilled and acclaimed documentary filmmaker. And her foray into narrative feature filmmaking is autobiographical, uh, something that draws from her own life. And it's a very unsettling, disturbing recollection of a time when she was um i believe 11 years no 13 years old 11 years old somewhere around there um when she was uh sexually abused by a pair of people who she came to trust and while that sounds like what you would call you know a a typical depressing harrowing sundance movie what's most compelling about this movie is how jennifer fox tells the story because the movie uh, begins by following Laura Dern as the older version of Jennifer Fox, she, um, pl- playing the filmmaker herself. And she has this memory dredged up from a story that she wrote when she was in grade school about this experience. But she has touched it up and spun it in a way that makes her think that it was a situation where she was very much loved and part of a, a special relationship with two people that she admired and came to trust. As she starts unraveling this story and reading through it, almost in a, an investigative journalist kind of way, she starts realizing that she has all these repressed memories of what actually happened. And you see the memories change as she takes through them. Details uh, change as she goes, goes back and actually remembers what really happened during this time. Um, and she, she brings... So oh, wait, wait, are we seeing the same kind of scenes done in different ways? Yeah, like, like for example, yeah, the, um, the, the earliest example of this is um, we go, it, it sets the stage of how she went to this equestrian camp uh, at this woman's ranch named Mrs. G, played by Elizabeth Debicki. Um, and she looks like she's about 14 or 15. And then all of a sudden she realizes that she's much younger after she goes back and looks at pictures of that time. And so we see the scene play out with this, this younger actress who looks like she's about 14 or 15. And then when Laura Dern realizes she was much younger than she initially imagined, it quickly goes through the same sequence with a girl who is who is younger, a younger actress around the age that she really was. And that's the actress that we stay with during the flashbacks for the rest of the movie. And so it'll it'll go back through scenes that we've seen and change the details. And there are certain sequences where uh, Laura Dern, the older version of Laura Dern, talks to her younger self. Or there's there's a couple sequences where Jennifer Fox uses these documentary elements where it looks like she's having a conversation with these people from her past as if she were interviewing them with uh, there's voiceover off camera of her asking questions. It's just a very interesting way to go through dig through this story and pull out these this trauma from from her own life. Uh, the movie is 
Um, very unsettling and disturbing to see because of how it portrays the abuse. Um, there were the, during the Q and A afterwards, Jason Ritter, who is one of the people in, involved in this, in the, the more unsettling scenes had trouble talking about making of it because of how disturbing it was for him to kind of get into that mindset. Um, even Ellen Burstyn who plays Laura Dern's mother in the movie had trouble talking about it, but this is, it's just such a brave story told by, you know, this woman who really experienced this, you know, terrible abuse. And I feel like it's just, it's such an important story because there are so many people out there who unfortunately have had the same experience and have likely repressed these memories. Um, so yeah, it's, I think it's definitely going to rattle some cages and it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a big deal once, uh, it finally comes out. It doesn't have distribution yet, so we'll, we'll see how that goes, but, uh, it's, it's a movie that definitely is begging to be seen. Okay, let's move on to Ben's number one pick, and that is Search. Yes, I absolutely love this movie. It is uh, first-time filmmaker Anish Chaganti's directorial debut. This film stars John Cho as a father who uh, basically has to track down his missing 16-year-old high school student daughter. Uh, and the entire movie plays out across computer screens. So I know that um, Unfriended came out in 2015. You guys may have may remember that movie as a horror film that basically all took place on one screen. But Search sort of expands that premise to multiple computers, uh, cell phones, um, you know, Google Maps, streaming sites, videos of local newscasts, like app control, security footage. There's all, it. It is such an expansive movie for such a uh, a limited creative um, platform that they have to tell this story. And it's really an incredible detective story. Um, I, I think there's like a voyeuristic quality to this. Uh, it is one of the most engaging, um, sort of compelling, edge of your seat kind of movies that, I, that I've seen in a long time. The performances are all great, but the you, you might think that this is just uh, the presentation is just a gimmick. But I think there is so much emotion that Chiganti and his his fellow filmmakers were able to uh, capitalize on it and sort of pull out of these um, tools on that we deal with every day on computer screens and. The it reminded me a little bit of Catfish, the the movie, not the, the MTV show. Um, how that film sort of uh, incorporated elements of social media and and Facebook and all that kind of stuff into the actual movie itself. This does that, but sort of builds on that cinematic language and really, um, yeah, builds it out into this amazing new thing. Uh, it is a, a tremendous movie and um, one of the most, you know, electrifying and purely entertaining things that I saw at the entire film festival. And you mentioned Catfish. That was actually a film that also premiered at Sundance Film Festival. And uh, uh, the construct of this movie sounds so compelling. I was uh, so intrigued by Infriended, which also was produced by uh, the wanted uh, filmmaker Timur Bermatov, uh, I, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, something like right. that. Uh, this film is also produced by him, so uh, mm-hmm. it's interesting that he's uh, taking this concept further. And uh, I'm excited to see this. Um, do you guys have any um, honorable mentions? Oh, real quick, uh, Sony Pictures picked up Search, oh. so that one should be uh, coming to theater sometimes this year or sometime later this year. Um, I don't have any honorable mentions, but I know Brad does, right? Yeah. Um, the one movie that I uh, I really really enjoyed and that I know a lot of people will as well is a movie called Eighth Grade. That's the feature directorial and writing debut of comedian Bo Burnham, who got a star on YouTube. And the movie focuses on a uh, a girl who is in the last week of eighth grade and follows the 
basically just the trials and tribulations of uh, getting ready to go into high school and being awkward around boys and being obsessed with her phone and computer and uh, having a very uh, frustratingly confrontational relationship with her father who's kind of awkwardly and uh, dorkily trying to be sweet and engage with her, but she just won't have it and is so annoyed at just like him asking the simplest questions. Somehow Bo Burnham, despite being a 27-year-old guy has perfectly tapped into the mind of a 13-year-old girl. It's it's crazy how well he's written this movie to and captured the voice of, of teenagers and the struggle of what it's like to connect. Um, it's it's just it's done so much better than many other coming-of-age movies that, that I've seen. Um, and it's just it's at a very unique time. You know, a lot of people will tell you that middle school just sucks because you know your your body is changing and. Uh, kids are starting to be huge jerks. You're starting to figure out who you are, and you know it's just you're surrounded by some of like the worst kids ever. Um, and this just this perfectly captures all the aspects of that. It's it's very lively. It's very funny. It's very it's it's charming, and it's it's just got you know all these different things going for it. And it's it's definitely going to be one uh, that people are going to want to see. Uh, is um is there any other movies that people were talking about that maybe you guys did not see? Yes. So there's one called Hereditary, which is uh, supposedly one of the scariest horror movies to come out in you know a decade is what people are saying. And I think across the board, the reactions that I've seen uh, and heard, you know, overheard on buses and all that kind of stuff while we were in Park City was that this movie is incredible. So uh, I'm bummed that neither Brad or I uh, had a chance to check this one out in person. But um, I think that one is, is going to be coming out later this year. Fingers crossed. And then uh, one other one that I just wanted well, to that, mention. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, if you if you are looking for a perspective on actually uh, Steve, um, who helped us with extra uh, coverage, we'll have a review of Hereditary uh, coming sometime soon. So we'll we'll have some kind of perspective on it, even though Ben and I didn't see it. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's great. And and you guys should be sure to check out, you know, we've written a ton of reviews and Steve has has been helping out a lot. And we have a lot of his reviews up on SlashFilm.com as well. So um, be sure to check out all of our footage there. And one other one that I wanted to bring up really quickly, just because it's going to be immediately accessible for everyone uh, starting on Friday, which is, I think, tomorrow, right, is um, A Futile and Stupid Gesture, which is uh, a new Netflix movie that is about the uh, the National Lampoon. And it has a terrific cast, um, Donald Gleason and uh, Amy Ross and Joel McHale. I think Joel McHale plays Chevy Chase in the movie. And there, uh, Brad, you know probably more about this one, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll actually hijack this from you because I uh, I <laughs> got a chance to, to watch this last night because I got a screener. Um, the premiere actually happened the day after we left Sundance. But since it comes out on Netflix this week, they were uh, very much willing to hand out screeners. And so I watched it last night. And there's a review that will be up on, is up on Slashfilm by the time you're listening to this. Um, and Will, will Forte's in the lead playing... Doug Kenny, uh, Doug Kenny, who was one of the co-founders of National Lampoon, and it follows kind of the the rise um, and the success of National Lampoon as a magazine, and then venturing into radio show and movies with Animal House and Caddyshack. But what's so interesting about this is coming from David Wayne, who uh, wrote What Hot American Summer and directed They Came Together and Role Models. Is it's not just a traditional biopic or showbiz uh, drama. He adds these cool meta elements into it where they're talking about what's happening and mock the fact that they've cast people like Joel McHale as Chevy Chase and John Daly as Bill Murray and they don't really look like the people that they're playing um they may and they make they make fun of biopic tropes you know but without being uh without being a parody it's more so satire and commentary on it as they go through the story and you have Martin Mull who's uh narrating the movie as an older version 
of Doug Kenny, um, which is an interesting choice that you, which you'll understand after you see the movie why it's so interesting because of the story of Doug Kenny himself. Um, but yeah, it's just it's so well done. Not only is it hilarious, but it, it does have something interesting to say other than just being funny about kind of the the tragedy that comes with being a comedian and how you're kind of always obsessed with trying to get the next laugh and figuring out where that's going to come from. Um, so yeah, it's it's a very good movie that you should uh, definitely watch on Netflix uh, once it comes out on Friday. So that does it for our best of Sundance episode of Slash Film Daily. Uh, you'll be able to find an article uh, listing all these movies and more on SlashFilm.com on Monday, I think it is? I think so, yes. Yes. And uh, you can read all the uh, reviews of these movies on SlashFilm.com, including uh, the reviews from Steve, who who could not join us today. Brad, where can people find more of your work online? I'm always writing on SlashFilm.com. You can find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderson. And you can check out my podcast, which is called Go Flix Yourself, F-L-I-X, on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. Ben, where can we find more of you? You can find me at SlashFilm as well, and you can find me on Twitter at Ben Pears. You can find me at SlashFilm on Twitter, SlashFilm.com, for all the reviews we talked about today. You can subscribe to this podcast, SlashFilm Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. If you have a question, comment, concern, uh, send it to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com and leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention it on the air. Please go rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, Tell your friends about this. Spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow.